Newspapers are supposed to shine a light on a community's ills, but sometimes the light must be directed inward, at a newspaper's own abject failures. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, Therese Bottomley, editor and vice president of content for The Oregonian and Oregon Live. We talked about publishing prejudice, the Oregonian's racist legacy, the new investigative series that just posted today, why the newsroom pursued this story, what happens next, and much more. Here's our conversation. Therese Bottomley, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Therese, by the time people are hearing this, uh, Publishing Prejudice, the Oregonian's racist legacy, uh, the first part of a pretty extensive series is online. And I thought we'd bring you on just to talk about the background that led to this project and get additional thoughts on on why we pursued this project. So why did we want to go into the archives and examine the Oregonians' history in such a in-depth way? Well, we're not the first news organization to do this, and I do want to give credit to those who went before us. Uh, Kansas City did a deep look into their coverage. Uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, our neighbor to the north, the Seattle Times recently uh, published uh, uh, two parts of their series called A1 Revisited. Uh, but the the 2020, the summer after George Floyd was murdered, when 10,000 Portlanders and Oregonians, you know, gathered to march for social justice. It just really seemed to be a time where a lot of institutions in the country and locally were looking inward and uh, asking, you know, challenging questions of their own past, their own present. And it seemed uh, a timely uh, moment for us to do the same. Rob Davis had looked at our coverage of uh, non-unanimous juries, for instance, and wondered to himself, you know, what else might the Oregonian have played a part in, in terms of holding up or sustaining or promoting um, structures that had a racist outcome. Yeah, before we dive into some of the findings, can you refresh people's memory? Uh, what was the Oregonian's role in the non-unanimous jury situation, um, which, you know, was playing out until real time until uh, recent years. Yeah, up until recently, we were one of only two states that allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts. Um, And uh, it was something the Oregonian championed, and it was an attempt to um, minimize the effect, in in the newspaper's words, of uh, the East European influence. Um, So it, it came out of a specific trial, but the Oregonian did uh, uh, champion it. Um, and, uh, we were not among the newspapers that looked at, uh, the effect of it until recently. And so, you know, now the, the whole idea of non-unanimous juries has been struck down, but, uh, the Oregonian and its role in, um, promoting that was not, uh, that well known. Okay. Um, so, Rob Davis, uh, as you said, uh, really dove into this story as he does when he sinks his teeth into a an issue. Um, and what stood out to you from, you know, the first part of Rob's series? Uh, there will be uh, a second part by that'll come out later this week. But what stood out to you as a, you know, someone who's led this newsroom for a long time and been in this newsroom um, for decades? 
Yeah, and add to that, I was born in Oregon and raised in Oregon and educated in Oregon. And I thought I knew a lot about the racist history of the state. And I expected when we went into this project that I would see kind of what I call sins of omission, that we missed we missed things. We we weren't embedded in communities. We didn't include voices. We, um, you know, overlooked important aspects. Uh, what I was really shocked by and saddened by was the degree to which the leaders of the newspaper, you know, from when we went to a daily in 1861 until well up into the um, last century, that um, we the newspaper was actively racist and was actively in favor of things that um, supported and maintained power with white men and white men only. And uh, it was not just a product of its time. You know, it wasn't just reflecting the sentiments of the day. It was well beyond um, that in terms of sort of abhorrent, um, xenophobic and racist uh, positions and coverage. You know, you mentioned you're a lifelong Oregonian and Portlander, and obviously are kind of an institution at this at this uh, newsroom. What were your views on Harvey Scott and Henry Piddock before this project? You know, I used to uh, look a little bit at the um, the history when I would go to speak to a Rotary Club or a a class or a, a community group, and. I would, you know, tell little anecdotes about Henry Piddock and how he came and begged for a job and there was no job. So he offered to work for free and he slept under the desk until he, you know, could get a job. And uh, and he would pick up a paper on his way into the office. And then when he was done, he would fold it up and take it back to the newsboy to to sell on the street corner. He wouldn't waste a single one. And, you know, we all who grew up here know about Piddock Mansion. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know other than uh, two kind of headlines. One that the the founder of the paper in 1850 really saw it as a political organ and he wanted to get a political message out. It was Henry Piddock, you know, in the in the mid 1800s that he really brought a news sensibility to it and really infused it with a uh, with more news and news headlines. And he had some innovations in terms of, you know, using the Pony Express to get telegrams, you know, to Portland to get the news in before everybody else. So, you know, I had these little kind of anecdotal historical nuggets that um, didn't really tell the full picture. Harvey Scott, a little bit different because, you know, I think most um, people growing up in Oregon do learn a little bit about the history of women's suffrage and women getting the vote. And there's always that classic story of Harvey Mm -hmm. Scott being against it and his sister, Abigail Scott Dunaway, being a huge proponent of it. And at the end of the day, of course, women did get the vote, but it was only after Harvey Scott had died. But, um, you know, I think people knew those little you know, anecdotal bits of history. But what I really did not know was the degree to which the views of those two men and their sentiments that uh, power should remain with white men and that there are many ways in which the signal should be sent that Black people were not welcome, that Black Oregonians uh, should remain behind the cover line, that there should be these systems and 
policies that promoted prejudice, and I just was ignorant of the degree to which uh, they were out-and-out racist and how that was reflected uh, week in and week out in the pages of the newspaper. Yeah, there's some really um, difficult passages to read, and in particular the um, uh, hanging uh, in Coos Bay of Alonzo Tucker and the the newsrooms um, at the time, the leadership's role in um, celebrating that was something that was very challenging to read. That's a good example, Andrew, of exactly what I mean. It, it wasn't just that the newspaper and the editors at the time didn't call out the abhorrent nature of what happened to Alonzo Tucker, but they, as you said, they they not only did not speak out loudly against the injustice, they applauded it, essentially. So, you know, the Oregonian and other large, you know, daily newspapers in their communities and, you know, American cities are often called the paper of record or, you know, uh, which has a a different sort of definition that you can talk about. But also, I mean, the role is really to set the agenda, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, obviously, to reflect what the community is interested in, what's happening in the community. But um, now looking back with the eyes wide open, um, what does this mean (laughs) about the Oregonians' role in Oregon as it is today and has been in recent decades? Well, the the paper of record idea is is simply that no, nothing of importance is not noted in the pages of the Oregonian, and that comes from a time when daily newspapers had the wherewithal to go to every city council meeting and, in in some ways, transcribed or take stenography of what occurred, what what happened at that meeting. Uh, they covered local government, you know, crime, schools. Mm-hmm. Everything there, there wasn't much that happened locally uh, when newspapers were at their height that you know did not get at least a brief notice in the paper, and that's kind of the paper of record idea. But I think you know any newspaper that truly thinks that the paper of record is kidding themselves a bit because you know as as we have learned from this project, um, there is just so much that we don't know and we don't reflect because we're not. Uh, members of all of the communities that we serve, and we're not uh, close enough to those stories, and we don't have enough uh, people on our staff who are living uh, lives that are different from ours. And if you have that kind of sameness, and that is certainly what the historical Oregonian had, it was a newspaper of white men, by white men, for white men, and that very much is reflected. So this whole idea of paper of record is you know, really an empty shell at this point when you um, when you think about how far off the mark uh, we really were and, and probably still are. We just, you know, we still to this day cannot kid ourselves that we are uh, into every major important trend or uh, event or news story that's happening in our own backyard. So when did it become evident in the last year or during the course of reporting that you wanted to weigh in directly with an apology? That was, you know, that was part of the plan from fairly early on. And then it did, uh, the the question I think for me was, I could certainly see um, 
advantages to me as editor today apologizing as editor of the Oregonian today. There's an institutional voice through our editorials that also was potentially a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, in my mind, it's like, is it better for the institution or is it better for the editor as a human being? And at the end of the day, I decided it was better for me as a human being to apologize because I felt it would be more human. It would be person to person, you know, from me directly as the person sitting in the chair and making the decisions today, looking back with the harsh light that Rob has shined on our past and unreservedly and, you know, full-throatedly apologizing for it. So I, you know, I, I think Reasonable people could disagree whether it should have been the institution or not. We will have an editorial which will weigh in, but I felt the apology should be a a very human acknowledgement of our failures. So given kind of the, um, you mentioned sameness earlier uh, in terms of the makeup of the Oregonian, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but um, obviously your apology hits on this. You know, diversity in our newsroom is not just our newsroom and lots of newsrooms is a it's it's a an issue that we are continually trying to address. How did we try to navigate shedding light on on our own issues as a institution uh, issues being a severe understatement, the racist history in a clear way, given that we aren't the most diverse organization and like how did we make sure that we're doing right can you talk about the process there yeah i think that was that's really challenging and i think it's challenging for the the reporter and editor who are closest to this project to to recognize that again as we are not members of the communities affected most directly by this coverage we are not um always aware of blind spots. We we know we have implicit biases. We're human beings, but we don't necessarily know what they are. So um, I think there was a very deliberate and careful approach to bring in many voices to help us, you know, see where we may be missing something. We may be not recognizing the a word choice is wrong. Um, we may not be recognizing uh, a missed opportunity. And so we did that in several ways. One, we do have a newsroom diversity committee, and we did uh, share drafts with members of that committee for feedback. Um, We did seek out, we have two former chairs of our diversity committee who have gone on to other jobs, and we sought out their input, both people of color who Mm -hmm. we felt um, understood thoroughly the journalistic mission who would provide, I think, good, good feedback and also very, you know, straightforward, forthright feedback. And then we did something we really haven't done before, which is we sought out community members uh, to bring a non-journalistic, in, in the most part, perspective, a, a community member perspective, a reader perspective, but also one uh, informed by their diverse life experiences. And we asked them as well and paid them for their time, but we contracted with them to read the pieces and give us their um, 
you know, absolutely honest feedback. And we incorporated many, if, if not all, but most of their um, suggestions were really helpful, really improved the journalism, were very welcome. And I think it, it made the journalism better. I'm curious, Therese, uh, you've served in the role as a public editor previously. Maybe that's part of your <laughs> duties now. I mean, you wear a lot of hats as as the top editor at the paper. But I'm curious, you know, you've had people reaching out to you, giving feedback on stories for longtime uh, readers, people who aren't readers, just people in the community. Does this project change how you view anything you've heard during your tenure or the voices that you didn't hear from? I think we always try to approach conversations with readers that, uh, one, that uh, they're coming at the journalism from a different perspective, and two, that they're coming at it with uh, often diverse or opposing points of view. Um, I've often tried to engage and understand with readers who are coming to us with a complaint or a you know, a complaint that they see bias or that they feel something has been misportrayed or was unfair. Um, so I, I do think it it just underscored for me that uh, we need to uh, keep a friend of mine that not everybody understands journalism, that don't, don't understand even what the goal of what we're doing is. Not everybody perceives it with the same lens that we do and that we have to do more and better in terms of um, building the trust with Mm -hmm. the community, which we can do through transparency around our decision making, but also opening up the pages to more diverse voices as well. So they feel like they do have a place at the table here and that um, they they can be heard um, and heard in an unfiltered way. So now that you know this story is out there and there's another story that is equally extremely challenging to read that'll be online in a couple of days by the time people listen to this i mean now what what do we do now that we know this information as a newsroom what do we do um and what will we do going forward and then what do you think you know portland or oregon should do with the recognition of this uh really racist legacy as the title uh lays out there well i think it it just gives us a a challenge that we've always had it which is to do better you know be better we as you said we have always um thought about diversity within our newsroom and we you know we want to have a newsroom that reflects our community that is a priority for me uh this just underscores the need for that that you're not going to get authentic coverage uh, of all the communities we serve if you don't have members of those communities uh, producing journalism for you. So it's a matter of finding um, ways to do that. It's a matter of going out and listening to communities. We have committed to the newsroom leadership uh, going out to uh, where the community is, not expecting them to come to us, but um, uh talking to people about what they are um, missing in our pages, what stories we are missing uh, that are important to their community, what information they need. Uh, just it, it may be just a little bit of deconstructing, like they, this is what we do and this is what journalism is all about. We can't assume 
that all readers from all backgrounds completely understand what it is uh, that we do as local journalists, uh, especially in this day and age where the media, you know, gets lumped in with, we get lumped in with, <laughs> you know, all sorts of national news outlets and and not uh, independent journalistic outfits and outfits that have uh, inherent bias. And so it just underscores to me the need to be transparent, to be accessible, to be in the communities, not expect that news from those communities will reach us. Um, and we, we, just, we just have to be better. How does this project affect your relationship to this place that you've you know, dedicated your professional life to? Well, you said it. It's very hard to read this. You know, it, a lot of it is new to me, and maybe it shouldn't have been. Maybe I should have known all this sooner. Um, you know, as I as I said to one of the family members in the the segment that's coming up about our coverage of the Japanese American imprisonment, I said, you know, I came here forty years ago, and this incident that we're talking about occurred 40 years before that. That's not very long ago. That's a very, to me, a very direct connection in time. And so it, it has changed, um, not the way I feel about the newspaper and the news organization today, because news organizations are human endeavors. You know, they are made up of the people, who, just as we were talking about, they they are reflecting the people who make them up, just like a school board or a you know a any other group that's largely a reflection of who's at the table. And so, I have complete confidence in this newsroom staff that we will continue to learn and grow and uh, search out the blind spots and confront our implicit biases and make sure that we are reflecting the whole community. But it does make me rethink the past and you know what I think of in terms of how I talk about the past. You know, I've given plenty of speeches where I sort of proudly say that we're the oldest continuously operating business in the state of Oregon. We're holder of business license number one. That's true, but it's not at all the whole story as I can attest anymore. Um, and I think that when I talk publicly about the history of the Oregonian, that has to be uh, now part of the conversation going forward. I will say, too, just on a personal note, I have had a an affection for a bust of Henry Piddock that used to be in the senior manager's office. When he retired, it went to the editor. When he retired, it came to me. It's about three feet tall. It's a plaster bust. It sits in the corner of my office, and I might throw a timber scarf on it on game day or, you know, a funny hat on it or whatever, but now it's going away. It's going to be uh, sent to probably the Piddock uh, Society. It may go to the Historical Society, but it's not going to have the place that it has had in my office anymore, knowing what I know now about uh, the views of Henry Piddock and how the pages of the Oregonian reflected those for years. Before I let you go, I'm just curious if you've given any thought to how you will describe the Oregonian differently now um, on your next 
public appearance or, you know, coffee get together or whatever you do when you're out there, um, you know, talking to civic leaders and just community members? How, how will, have you thought about that at all? I hope that the next several dozen of those are with people who have deeply engaged with this work, with this project. And I hope that we can have a full and uh, honest and forthright conversation about the work and the history and where we hope to go from here. So uh, I don't see it as anything that won't be front and center for any public uh, facing conversation that I have with the community for a long time to come. Therese, is there any way that you've noticed now that we have kind of laid bare the racist legacy of these two men, um, you know, that makes you question how we've covered things more recently? I think it's uh, something we have to confront each and every day. You know, when we talk about Memorial Coliseum and the, and you know, that area, we, are we remembering that that used to be a black neighborhood that, um, was uh, raised because of urban renewal, a pr- process that the Oregonian strongly supported uh, in its editorial pages. We're about to launch an internal source audit where we look at who we talk to and who we quote in the pages of the Oregonian. I think we're going to find we quote a lot of white men. Is that a completely a reflection of the power structure of America, or is that partly a long-standing habit that uh, journalists sort of have handed down from, you know, reporter to reporter. If you're on a beat and you say, well, here's here's the really good organization that knows a lot about that, it sort of perpetuates uh, whose voices get heard. And I think we have to continue to look at all of those structures and, and examine them and prosecute them and say, well, whose voices are we missing um, even today? Anything else you'd want to add? No, just that I do hope people read this. It is hard to read. Uh, Like anything in this instant uh, social media world where we uh, are distracted and it's hard to focus, these are long stories and they're very well done. But I hope readers do take time with them. And then we have set up a couple of ways for people to reach us and let us know what they think about these. I am always trying to answer my emails that come to me. Uh, We have the public editor email as well. And we are planning to open up space in the pages to have additional room for reader response to, uh, to the series, which will appear in print this coming Sunday, October 30th, in a special section. Well, Therese Bottomley, thanks so much for all of your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. To comment on the Publishing Prejudice Project or to share a story idea, email us at equity at oregonian.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 503-221-8055. Until next time.